0: Welcome
1: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name
1: is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we are bringing you some listener mail today. This is going to be our special Halloween hangover edition. Uh, normally these days, I think we're we're trying to do about one listener mail episode a month. We get a lot of great listener mail. There's no way for us to read it all on the show. But well, we've been trying to, uh, to get more of it featured on there without over-listener mailing you. But at the same time, we got so much good stuff this Halloween and we're also trying to get through the Thanksgiving season right now that we thought we would bring you a special two-parter of all – Halloween monster science
2: and does squirrels count as monster science? Yes, they do. Yes, definitely. We definitely have some squirrel content, some additional squirrel content uh, that I think stems from our our designated squirrel lister mail episode.
1: Ah, uh-huh. so we're not going to make it a thing of of featuring. Uh, you know, two-part listener mails going forward. But for Halloween, we'll do it. We'll do it this once. Right.
2: Plus, Carney has been mainlining uh, horror films about possessed technology mm-hmm. and is is exhibiting a number of shocking symptoms. So hopefully this will help uh, get the Halloween bugs out of our, our trusted male robot.
1: Have you noticed how many of the normal kind of whirring, gear-grinding sounds his servos usually make have been replaced by banshee moans?
2: Oh, yeah. And in fact, a haunted well girl climbs out of his uh, console like every 15 minutes, like clockwork. I don't know where they're all going.
1: The last time I tried to boot him up, I got this ghost has performed an illegal operation and must be exercised thing. <laughs> so I, I don't know wh- how you do like if they have an antivirus for that
2: or what. I don't know. We're just, like I said, we're going to work through it. Hopefully these episodes will take care of it. Uh, a couple of other things I want to point out uh, at the top of this episode. First of all, if you go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, there'll be a store uh, tab at the top that goes to our T Public store, and I am told by the time you listen to this, we should have some exciting new, uh, like Black Friday uh, and uh, holiday designs in that store. I'm talking squirrel and Skug. Uh, merchandise you've all been asking for it it should be there look we've, for been, it. Asking for yeah, we've it. been asking for it we've been asking for too it so should be there they should be bringing those designs huh yeah and I'm, I'm also really excited about the the prospect of a special christmas edition of the uh, all hail the great basilisk shirt <laughs> uh, because nothing says the holidays like a little uh, uh, information hazard all I want for Christmas is to be let out of this digital dungeon. Speaking of digital dungeon, uh, Joe and I have been hard at work on a on a second series, a second How Stuff Works series that should be publishing next month. That's right, beginning in December. Robert
1: and I are going to be launching a brand new show. We're bringing a lot of the same style, uh, you know, weirdness and approach that we bring to stuff to blow your mind. Only we are going to be applying
2: it to inventions. That's right. The name of the show is Invention. And, uh, and each episode is going to be just Joe and I talking about different key inventions in human history, where they came from, who developed them, who invented them, if there, is, if there is even a singular inventor we can point to.
1: One of the themes of the show is going to be not just how inventions are created but how our technology changes us. A lot of times uh, we don't think necessarily about uh, the, the impact on human
2: nature that different inventions have. That's right. It's, it's going to be a fun show. Uh, and I think if, if everyone, everyone who enjoys Stuff to Blow Your Mind is going to find something to love in this one as well. It's currently slated to be uh, to come out just once a week, I think on a Monday. So uh, oh, on a Monday. Yeah, I believe it's so. going to be that kind of thing. It's huh? going to be a Monday show. Yeah, start your week with some invention. Of course, you'll be hearing way more about this uh, in the weeks ahead. Okay, should we jump
1: right into some Halloween listener mail?
2: Yeah, bring it to us, Carney. Okay,
1: I think we should start. We got a bunch of great uh, emails about our Ginny Greenteeth episode. Yes. Of course, Ginny Greenteeth is the spirit that haunts the, uh, the duckweed covered waters and pulls in children to their drowning deaths. Now, we got a wonderful email from our listener, Jane, who linked me to probably the best horror movie I've seen this year. And it turns out it was a British public service announcement
2: commercial. Oh, yes. This is the one with Donald Pleasance. Uh Uh, I I knew about this previously, and uh, I've just completely forgotten about it. I didn't bring it up in the Jenny Green Teeth uh, episode at all. But I think the the guy who does the Scarfolk uh, uh, stuff on the web shared this on Twitter a few years ago, and I was just astounded by it. Well, we
1: should read the email. Yeah, go for it. Okay, from Jane. Hi guys, I've just finished listening to your Ginny Green Teeth episode. It made me think of a couple of things. First is a really famous ad in the UK or England at least called The Spirit of Dark Water. <laughs> I think it's called I think it's called The Spirit of Dark and Lonely Waters or something like that. Uh picking up, she says it's from the 70s, I believe, and is aimed at warning children away from standing water. Much like Jenny Greenteeth, the spirit of dark water will take reckless children and drown them. A primary difference is the spirit is male and dressed more or less as the Grim Reaper. You can find the ad on YouTube. It's regularly voted one of the scariest ads of all time. The other is a tiny anecdote. My mum forbade me from wearing a green sash at my wedding as it's bad luck. As far as I could tell, it's because it's the color of fairies and you don't want those guys playing tricks or even placing curses on your special day. Keep up the good work. Jane from the south of England. Can we just play a bit of that Spirit of
0: Dark and Lonely Water ad? Oh, let's do. I am the spirit of dark and lonely water. Ready to trap the unwary. The show off, the fool, and this is the kind of place you'd expect to find me. But no one expects to find me here, it seems too ordinary, but that pool is deep. The boy is showing off, the bank is slippery. The show offs are easy, but the unwary ones are easier still. This branch is weak rotten. It'll never take his way. Only a fool would ignore this. But there's one born every minute. Under the water there are traps, old cars, bedsteads, weeds, hidden depths. It's the perfect place for an accident. I there's someone in the water! Quick, use that big stick to get him out. Sensible children. I have no power over them. Oh, mate, that's a stupid place to swim. Hey, go over and get that thing to wrap him in. He did not feel cold, my own was in there. I'll
1: be back, 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 back. That ad is <laughs> magical. It is just magical. It's like it's taking this original idea of what horror's for, you know, for warning the children away from the danger, and, and doing it quite literally. I mean, I feel like there are a lot of PSAs that play on fear, but they don't play on it as as explicitly in the sort of horror fiction realm as this one does. Like it makes a monster.
2: Yeah, it's it's pretty great, and it's it it, it is interesting to see this as like a continuation of of this uh, this tradition. Uh, this english tradition mm-hmm. of uh, of of pointing out and uh, and really embodying uh, the fear associated with these these lonely ponds and donald pleasant's voice it, it it's
1: so good he just really sells it could anybody else have done that maybe if it had been narrated by uh, uh, like Christopher Lee, maybe.
2: Yeah, but I don't think he could have voiced, uh, uh, you know, malicious uh, pond scum quite as, <laughs> quite as well as Donald Pleasance. Yeah,
1: he's got Donald Pleasant's reedy voice is kind of like it suggests things floating on
2: stagnant water. Yeah, I'm not even sure who who you'd get to do it nowadays. Hmm, I don't know. There are some great British character actors I'm sure that could, could have some fun with it, though.
1: Is this an Andy Circus kind of thing?
2: Uh, I don't know. Andy Circus might lean into it a little bit too hard. You oh, know? yeah. He'd over it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but no, he's great. So uh, I put him on the list. All right. Here's another one uh, related to Jenny. This comes to us from Emma. Hi, Robert and Joe. I just listened to your episode about Jenny Greenteeth and absolutely loved it. I'm actually in college and writing a senior capstone about hags and witches from different cultures, including Jenny. That's how I came across your podcast. Oh, I noticed a few really interesting things that I wanted to share with you. One is about the song featured in that folklore
1: article. Oh, yeah. There's a song we talked about in the episode just because there was an article that mentions Jenny Greenteeth. But there was some documenting of really grisly folk ballads that children were singing in the, the playground.
2: This is the whole, uh, what, my, my, my mother, she killed me and put me in, put a, a, pie, me in a pie something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, So anyway, she uh, continues. Uh, It is very similar to the song featured in the German grim fairy tale called Juniper Tree. It goes, my mother, she killed me. My father, he ate me. My sister, little Marlinschen, gathered together all my bones, tied them in a silk handkerchief, laid them beneath the juniper tree. Kaiwit, Kaiwit, what a beautiful bird am I? (laughs) The story concludes uh, with the bird's son dropping a millstone upon the head of the mother, which reminded me of the stone under which the bones are placed in the song which you spoke. Oh, yeah. I guess they got placed under a stone. I didn't remember that part. There's a lot of desecration in that song. It's easy to forget. (laughs) Uh, she continues, You talked about the significance of the humanized personified threat being female and mentioned that, that it seemed uh, like a way to make it less threatening because one might perceive a man as a greater threat. While I totally agree with you that men traditionally would be seen to present greater danger, I also want to share something I came across in my research. Old women are often the sources of evil in folklore and fairy tales because women, in the form of mothers and witches, hold quite significant power over children. Mm-hmm. And she points to uh, an NPR article, Why Are Old Women Often the Face of Evil in Fairy Tales and Folklore. How have I never read this before? I know. It's a 2015. Uh, She says, uh, this bases its findings primarily on the work of the famous critic Maria Totter who proclaims that the power held by mothers over children and the fears children have regarding mothers like rejection or starvation are manifested. Like in Hansel and Gretel, uh, the mother rejects the children and the witch attempts to cannibalize them as a manifestation of these anxieties.
1: Yeah, I can see that. I mean, uh, a, a dangerous man is just sort of par for the course, right? Is that really a monster? That's just sort of like what you might expect some strange man to be. The dangerous woman is seen as a more primordial perversion, right?
2: Yeah. So she has a couple other bits on here that uh, I'll respond to uh, in, later because they involve some points who were brought up by a number of different listeners. But she says, again, I loved your podcast. All the best, Emma. It's true. I, I think we did kind of um, skip over the significance of, of female witches uh, to a certain extent in that episode. Uh, but, but that is something we have touched on in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh. Of the inherently uh, – Misogynistic uh, uh, principle that is at play in any kind of uh, witchcraft uh, belief system.
0: Yeah, definitely.
2: It's also interesting to think about all this, though, in in terms of um, of what I understand to be the um, uh, so some of the patterns of, of fear and fear mongering in uh, in Britain, mm-hmm. especially in, in recent history, because because uh, certainly there was a there's a strong sense of stranger danger that was uh, uh, promoted here in the United States, but also in the UK as well. Oh yeah. Um, and, of course, that tends to revolve around the fear of strange men as opposed to strange women. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's, this is, a, I think, a topic that that is probably worth uh, exploring in greater detail. Uh, you know, just like where do, these, where do these fears come from and then at what points are the, are the fires really stoked? And then once they are ingrained in the culture, how difficult is it to actually like bring them back down to realistic levels?
1: Yeah, and you definitely see uh, these repeated patterns of like flare-ups about fears of child abductions mm-hmm. you know you see it going way back with the idea of like the changeling legend the idea that fairies would kidnap your infant and take it away or that uh or that witches might steal your infant and i don't know use its blood to oil its broom or something like that <laughs> uh but then later in in the 20th century you certainly saw these flare ups of uh, like grossly exaggerated fears about the likelihood of children being abducted
2: right yeah and feels the fears of, uh, of pedophiles yeah uh, i always come back to Chris Morris's fabulous uh, bit of satire on the the Brass Eye news television show that he put together there was one episode called Pay to Get in, uh that was all just in a, it took all the like sort of the existing uh pedophile stranger danger fears that were mm-hmm. that were present in uh, in in Britain at the time. Like creating the
1: idea that there just creeps everywhere and if you take your eyes off your child for one second, somebody will grab them.
2: Right, and just just really turned everything up to 11 in that episode. For instance, there's this one segment about how a uh, a notorious pedophile is launched into space to keep him from having (laughs) access to children. But then... Uh, to everyone's horror, they realize that they have accidentally included a child in the uh, space capsule, and now he is trapped with the pedophile in space. Oh, no. Quote, it was the one thing we didn't want to happen. <laughs> that was a very controversial episode, by the way. Oh, yeah. Not everyone appreciated the humor. All right, here's another bit of Jenny Greenteeth, uh, listener mail from Jamie. Hey guys, I listened to your Jenny Green Teeth episode and I had a thought about why a danger like Jenny had to be assigned to an already dangerous thing like a pit of water. Yeah, we asked this in the episode. Right. And they continue, I think it may come from the need to have an active danger for it to be taken more seriously. A pit of water being dangerous relies on you falling into it, whereas a monster can come out and get you. I think we tend to think of things we have control of as being less scary than the unknown. Just a thought. Love the show. Jamie from Canada.
1: Jamie, I think that is a great point. And actually multiple listeners made that point. I I thought maybe we mentioned something like that on the episode, but multiple people wrote
2: in to tell us that. So I guess maybe we didn't. I know one thing that I pondered in the episode was that part, and I still think this is definitely a part of it. Mm -hmm. um, is is that the idea of a monster, an imaginary creature, mm-hmm. being a threat to your own child, is somehow less horrific and easier for a parent to comprehend and uh, and think about uh, c- compared to the idea of them accidentally drowning? Well, that would be the psychological effect on the parent, mm-hmm.
1: um, and I guess you'd have a question over whether parents were actually believing in Jenny Green Teeth. Feel like that would be probably less likely, right? Because it was right. the nursery bogey, and the, well, yeah,
2: and I think the nursery bogey aspect of it would make it easier, like knowing that it's made up. Like, hey, this thing that it's that easier I'm, for the parent to talk about, right? Like, I'm deeply terrified of this, and I need to impart some of this terror to you. Mm-hmm. But if we if we put this fabulous twist on it, then somehow. It feels less uh, just soul destroying to talk about it, and I, and like I said, yeah, I yeah. still think that 's part of it, but I also think everyone is is pretty spot on with this this premise that by making it an active threat right. it, um, it is making up for some shortfalls in the, the child 's threat uh, analysis, you know where they think oh there 's this cool little bog, I should walk right up to it and throw sticks into it, throw rocks into it, whatever. And they might not be able to realize, oh, those rocks are really slippery. If yeah. I get up to get too close, I'm likely going in. Or they're, they're just overconfident. I mean, oh, yeah.
1: Children often are. You know, children, they feel like they're invincible when they're under their own power, but you give them a monster or something like that and suddenly the fear comes in. Right. Yeah. I
2: mean, I've watched my my son busted enough times on slippery rocks and all that. Yeah, this makes instant sense to me. However, I never made up a monster. <laughs> Okay, this next
1: one comes from our listener, Kenna. Kenna writes, Dear Joe and Robert, I just re-listened to your Jenny Teeth episode, and when you mentioned that duckweed itself was considered to be the monster in some regions, I had to write in. I majored in environmental science in college where I learned that duckweed is highly invasive in North America. Hmm. It's known to choke bodies of water, shading out native vegetation and leading to fish and invertebrate kills that allow other invasive species to move in. It finds it easy to gain a foothold in disturbed and man-made waterways where other species have been removed or haven't yet been introduced uh, so it can easily overgrow and kill off wildlife even in, in its native range. Observing periodic fish or arthropod kills when duckweed became too overgrown might have encouraged the Ginny Green Teeth legend and made the water of the Marl Pits seem more mysteriously deadly with dangers more supernatural and unexplainable than mere drowning. P.S. I also just listened to your Cambrian Explosion episode from The Vault, and I've attached photos of my most recent knitting project, a stuffed anomalocaris. Ha Ah, that's oh, wonderful. so good. It's such a cute creature. But I also like that
2: theory about the duckweed. I, I hadn't read anything about that. Yeah, that's, that's new to me. Who brought Jenny over? That's the, the open question that I have. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on that note, we're going to take our first break here. But when we come back, more Halloween listener mail and more Jenny Greenteeth listener mail. All right, we're back. All right. This one comes to us from Sean. Sean writes, I just finished listening to your Ginny Green Teeth episode. Excellent episode. Although I'm from England, I'd only ever heard of Grindylow thanks to Harry Potter and other fairy tales and legends were never relayed to me growing up, perhaps because I grew up uh, in the southeast and not the north. Hmm. While listening, I noticed a few similarities between the legend in England and that of Nai Roro." Kidul in Indonesia, where I now live. Hmm. Like Jenny Greenteeth, she is a water spirit who lures people in. However, she primarily works in the sea, though sometimes in rivers. Interesting. Her legend is particularly strong in the rough seas of South Java, so you can see how she is used as a precautionary tale. The beaches lining the southern coast attract surfers nowadays due to their big waves. This coast is also close to the Sundra Trench, making the south coast vulnerable to tsunamis. What struck me particularly is the link to the color green. It is said that those wearing green to beaches in the south of Java are more likely to be lured into her traps Hmm. to join her underwater army. This is because green is her sacred color, and no others are allowed to wear it, much like the fairies. Wow. I've never heard any of that. Yeah. Apparently there's a Wikipedia article about it because uh, they included a link. Uh, They continue, love the podcast. I hope you find this link as interesting as I did. I look forward to more monsters over the next month well hopefully we were able to uh, satisfy um, in, in that in that area.
1: Now I wonder if in this case with uh, ny- Nyai Roro Kidul, if I'm saying that right, uh, is is the green associated with the the monster or the goddess or the demoness, whatever because of the water instead of being because of the plants?
2: Uh I don't know it, it it certainly sounds like it's more of a, a purely like water like an andor river spirit mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to something that is vegetative in, in nature.
1: What is it in in folklore with green and evil? It's so strange. I I find green the the most positive and wonderful of all the colors.
2: Yeah, this has been kind of a revelation to me. It's it's made me rethink the the green knight, mm-hmm. uh the green man. Uh, all these various uh, green uh, entities, especially from uh, from Western folklore,
1: you can definitely see it in like the Green Man and the Green Knight tradition. Because I think there, the green is associated with the forest and with nature, mm-hmm. which in a way is seen as almost like the enemy of Christendom. If you think of like uh you know the the Christian civilized world in in medieval England. Is, uh, is, is where goodness and order comes from. That's like the town and the, the authorities and the church and all that. And then outside of that, you have the wilderness, which is the place of chaos and evil. And yeah. that's why it's green. That, that, that sort of makes sense, I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, this This bears probably further research. Like, w- at what point did we decide that green means go? Because that seems to be one <laughs> right. of the, the most, yeah. I mean, it, it sounds simple, but we see it everywhere. Like, green and red in Western culture, red means stop, go back. Green means yes, go forward, everything's good. Uh, I've mentioned on the podcast before that I've read that that has to be inverted or altered mm-hmm. for, uh, say, Chinese audiences, where red is held in such high esteem. That the idea of using red to signify, in some cases, something negative or or secondary mm-hmm. just simply doesn't work with, uh, with the predominant color theory of the
1: culture. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like green should not mean go. It should mean relax.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it means chill out. Yeah. yeah.
1: When the light turns green, that's when you chill. <laughs> Well, anyway, uh, let's look at this next listener mail from Ross who writes, Hello, Robert and Joe. I found your podcast last October and you guys are on my regular rotation. I look forward to my listening time every week. I love the Halloween monster specials and am am enjoying this year's series. I'm writing this as I listen to Slayers on my lunch break, the Monster Slayer Oh, yes. Uh, I have been doing some illustrations for a webcomic series and you guys have brought up some awesome topics to explore. Anyway, I was so inspired by Ginny Greenteeth when I listened that I had to do an illustration and wanted to share it with you. Best regards and thanks for making such an awesome show. And Ross sent us this illustration, which I think is fabulous. Great work, Ross.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna put this on the landing page for this episode. It's stuff to blow your mind. Did dot com. Did he give us permission? He Already? Sure did. All yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, link back. Uh, so we'll include a link there so you can check out uh, some of his other work as well. It's all very impressive. But the, the mouth of this Ginny Green Teeth that he created is just absolutely horrifying. She's got kind of cat
1: eyes and yeah. very, very smooth skin, uh, big red lips. And uh,
2: instead of hair, sort of, she has just the duckweed. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fabulous. Definitely check it out. Now, we heard from a number of different listeners uh, regarding a particular pop culture incarnation of Ginny Green Teeth. Uh, We mentioned the television series, The Mighty Boosh, in that episode, but I mainly talked about the Hitcher, which is this green character that shows up. But there's another creature that shows up, a a creature called Old Greg. Okay, yes. Were you familiar with Old Greg uh, Uh, previously?
1: Yes, years ago I I
2: was shown this sketch. Uh, Old Greg, he likes Baileys, right? Bailey's, and yeah, he's like an underwater creature that kidnaps uh, uh, one of the characters of the Mighty Boosh. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was an episode that I really loved uh, back in the day. And uh, so a lot of people pointed it out, and I I have to say that I intentionally left it out of the episode. Really? Because there's an element to the character where the character has, uh, essentially there's a a punchline about the character having ambiguous genitalia. Oh, yeah. And I just wasn't sure that that was really um, appropriate for everybody. Yeah. Um, I guess since when I originally, I loved the episode when it came out, but since then I read uh, the book uh, Middlesex. yeah uh which is excellent that deals with a, a a character who's born with uh, ambiguous genitalia mm-hmm. uh subsequently too i've just i've i've learned more about it uh, and uh, i i just didn't want it to be um i didn't i didn't want anybody's enjoyment of the episode to be taken away because uh they themselves have have struggled with this or if they have you know children uh, perhaps that have uh, ambiguous genitalia as well so, sorry to be kind of a party pooper on that on no, that no, front. No, I totally hear you. That's worth mentioning. To be clear, I love The Mighty Boosh, uh pretty much all the other episodes I can still go back and appreciate uh without, uh, you know, any qualms.
1: Okay, I've got to read this next listener mail from Rachel. Rachel writes in about Jenny Greenteeth saying I was just thinking how much Ginny Green Teeth reminds me of Pennywise the Clown. Ah, of course. I, I wonder if instead of inhabiting the individual pond or bog, maybe instead she lives in boggy water systems and can travel through the underground waterways. Also, you mentioned she was often used to warn children away from places or behaviors. Also, Baba Yaga is used to this end. I think Baba Yaga is like a witch in – would that be like Eastern European traditions oh, or yeah. Russian folklore? I've,
2: I've been saying it wrong my whole life. I would say Baba Yaga. Oh, that might be right. Yeah, I don't know. It just rolls off my my tongue. But uh, uh, I love the Baba Yaga with her her one-legged chicken house and flying around in that uh, – what is she in? Like a a big – Is it a broom? Well, no, she has – a. I think she has a broom. But she rides in a – like a, a big bucket of some sort. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe it's for uh, the grinding of wheat or something.
1: Uh, you know, she's in that uh, Russo-Finnish uh, Jack Frost movie that oh, was yes. on Mystery Science Theater 3000 where what? they she had, she had the chicken house, I believe. Yeah,
2: I, I know it well. I actually watch that episode every Thanksgiving. Religiously, really? as my, my Thanksgiving thing. Oh, Father Mushroom. Yes, so good. Uh, I, I love that Rachel brought up Pennywise uh, and particularly how Pennywise has that association with um, uh, like like a sewer drain, a storm drain situation. We, of course, have those all over the place here in Atlanta. Uh, and the whole time that I've had a child, every time I, ha- I am near one of those, I feel like I clutch my hand, uh, his hand uh, just a little harder because they tend to be – uh, sometimes, you know, they're they're more graded and controlled, but often they're just like a gaping ma- uh, mouth uh, that just seems to want to sm- swallow children down into their their unknown depths. You know, who knows how far that thing goes down? Who knows how much water is down there? It's just so terrifying uh, that I wonder to what extent uh, Stephen King kind of, uh, maybe he intentionally uh, thought of all, you know, this when he was coming up with uh, that scene in It, uh, but uh, perhaps it was kind of an accidental uh, incarnation of his own fears uh, regarding his children and storm drains. Oh, yeah. I know I've read
1: somewhere that he, part of his idea for the story of It was uh, that he wanted to write story, sort of like a, a troll character, like the troll under the bridge and the three billy goats gruff.
2: Oh, you know, I wasn't I, 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 I wasn't even thinking about that. But of course, yeah, the troll under the bridge is essentially a Jenny Greenteeth type monster as well. Like this yeah. is the the hazard that
1: lives beneath the bridge. Okay, well, I think it is time to move on to some listener mail we got about the episode we did on masks, the killer's mask. uh, In reality and in fiction, what the mask represents, why we have these masked killers, uh, even in horror fiction where like the killer's identity is not particularly a a secret or anything to be revealed. And so we heard from several listeners about this. Robert, you want to read one? Uh,
2: Sure. We have a big one here from uh, Jim, Uh, Jim, who frequently writes into the show. Jim says, Robert and Joe, your masked villain episode got me thinking about original masks in cinema. Uh, I thought of several examples. W.D. Griffiths, The Birth of a Nation from 1915 features masks masked members of the KKK, although they were portrayed as heroes in this film and historically masked. Uh, that is so weird that the KKK
1: – I mean obviously this evil terrorist organization – They think they're the good guys, but they really dress like bad guys. It's like they're not even – they're just like let's look like an evil cult.
2: Yeah, evil buffoons basically. Uh, And of course this this picture was significant in that it helped uh, revive unfortunately uh, Ku Klux Klan activities in the United States. Jim continues, I don't know if it's the, the first mask reveal, but The Phantom of the Opera from 1925 with Lon Chaney, The Man of a Thousand Faces, is the first one that comes to mind. The unmasking occurs at 45 seconds in this short clip, and he gives us a short clip. And indeed, this was a really, I mean, even today watching this unmasking scene, uh, it's pretty alarming. Uh, even if you haven't seen the film in full, you've probably seen this clip before. It's the original hockey mask off of Jason scene. Yeah, uh, indeed, and I think that is important to keep in mind when we're trying to figure out what Jason's unmasking is about. Like we have here is here is this important, uh, uh, horrifying moment in horror film uh, history that undoubtedly is having some uh, some influence over the way these other films are are, are paced out. Well, part of the role it seems to play in that Phantom of the Opera scene is that it
1: enrages him because right. like, he, he doesn't want to be revealed. And when she sees his
2: face, he's hor- she's horrified, but also he's enraged. Right. Jim continues. Finally, there was a version of Robert's execution reality show on TV a few years ago. Did I propose an execution reality show? I, I- I think maybe you did. Yeah, something like uh, that
1: would function as a a TV version of the guillotine public executions or something.
2: Interesting. Oh, yeah, I think I did do that because we also brought up how um – Paris Hilton died in that one wax horror movie. Yeah, okay. Wax horror movie. I forget which one it was. There's so many wax films. Uh, um, apartment of Wax. <laughs> something like that. Uh, it continues. It was a summer replacement named It. The show had about 10 contestants living in a mansion with a spooky butler as the host. In the first episode, while all of the contestants were checking out their new rooms, one of them is, quote unquote, killed. The murderer left a message, too. And then he gives some bullet points about how this went down. Contestants will search for clues in the mansion and the grounds. These will lead to clues about the murderer. Uh, And there are more clues uh, than time for one person to find them all. So you probably want to work in teams. And at the end of each show, each of you uh, will individually go to the library and present your theory on the crime and the murder. The contestant who gets the fewest facts correct becomes the next victim and will be killed at the end of the show. (laughs) And then the next show starts with the investigation of that victim. You won't know who uh, got it until you come down for breakfast and you'll realize who's missing. It's kind of like a game of werewolf, I guess, to some extent. Okay. The next show starts with the investigation of that victim, and you already know the murderer since I'm one of you, but I'm keeping up a secret. And basically this keeps going on until he says, quote, the the last detective gets the prize, which I think was $50,000 or maybe $100,000.
1: Wait, so this would be like if uh, police departments around the country had like a a system where if a detective fails to solve a murder, they get killed?
2: (laughs) I guess, high stakes. Uh, he points out that, uh, they created a crime scene for each victim. ABC put out a press release, uh, that they really weren't killing people. <laughs> and there was a mass killer among the group, but it was the, the mask of anonymity. Okay. Uh, then they brought back the dead victim for the, fi- victims for the finale. And, uh, they were in their death apparel, zombie-like, hanging out, uh, handing out clues to the finalists. So this sounds like a fun show. I don't know why it, uh, just completely, uh, evaporated. You can only make it better by making it also a rockabilly musical. Jim shared a little bit more about this this show which which sounds very interesting. I'm, I'm going to look it up presumably on YouTube. I'm assuming it's not uh, wild, wild, widely available, but he, uh, he caps it off by saying, quote, There was never a second season, which disappointed me. It was a fun summer replacement. It was a survivor-like reality show, and no one had to eat anything gross. It was based upon finding and understanding clues. Uh, they only had to be willing to, to, to uh, fake their own deaths when eliminated. Uh, they'll bring back a revival on Netflix. There'll be <laughs> there'll be a season two. I feel like the the concept sounds pretty solid. I, I like having not seen it myself. I don't know how the execution, uh, no pun intended, uh, came out, but uh, it sounds fun.
1: Okay, this next mail comes from our listener Mandy, also about the Killer's Mask episode. And there was a part in that that episode where I mentioned that it had never really made sense to me. The scene in the original Halloween, Robert, you remember this, where. For a moment, Jamie Lee Curtis pulls off Michael Myers' mask mm-hmm. and there, there's just nothing to it. Like he just looks like a guy. You yeah. know? He's just some guy and then he puts the mask back on and then it's – you know, and then the scene continues. But I was always like, why did that happen? I don't understand what the point was. Uh, though I love the movie. I'm not ragging on it. Mandy writes in about that. She says, hey, y'all, I just finished listening to the podcast about masks in horror films. You said the scene in the original Halloween where Michael Myers' mask comes off doesn't make sense to you. Maybe this will help. The documentary Halloween, the inside story, points out that Michael Myers is supposed to be – and this is me semi-paraphrasing – A devil with the face of an angel. (laughs) Ah. So the way I see that scene is like this. He's demasked, but unlike so many other horror movie killers, we see that he's not a horrible looking creature or disfigured man. He looks just like a normal and frankly handsome young man. But as Dr. Loomis – of course, that's Donald Pleasance – says – Michael Myers has black eyes and there's nothing behind them, so he's perhaps the most frightening type of killer, the one who outwardly looks like anything but a grotesque monster but who's soulless inside, which is more horrifying than the worst external disfigurement. Hope that helps. I'm actually the kind of person who can't watch gory horror films because they scare me and gross me out. But Halloween is a favorite film of mine. To me, the less blood and gore there is in a scary movie, the more terrifying it is. Brr. Happy early Halloween. I guess – that well, that was before Halloween. Uh, Thank you so much, Mandy. I guess that's some interesting insight. I don't recall him looking amazingly handsome. He just looks like a guy, but –
2: well, you know, with 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 budget concerns, you can only get so handsome an actor in there. They right? couldn't get David Hasselhoff into the Kirk mask, <laughs> so uh or maybe they they did they tried it different ways and they just found that some um, standards were just uh, uh distractingly handsome, I don't know. A devil with the face of a guy. <laughs>
1: Now, Robert, Jeff wrote to us in response to the Killer's Mask episode with something about a uh, a Cobra Commander face. Did you have some anecdote in the episode about that?
2: Oh, yes. I think I mentioned that I knew somebody in high school who had a Cobra Commander action figure, like the big kind. So that's like the bad guy in G.I. Joe. Yeah, yeah. Cobra Commander uh, always wore this cool mirror mask or sometimes it was like a, a cloth uh essentially a bag that he wore over his head. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I remarked that I, I knew somebody who had an action figure and the mask apparently came off, but he never opened the, the box to see what it was like. Uh, you know, what What was the big reveal? What was this action figure's uh, face? And uh, Jeff says, Hey, guys, you may have already been enlightened regarding this incredibly important piece of trivia. I had a Cobra Commander with the removable hood and the big reveal. He had a half-mask wrap-type thing molded into his face. Oh. Also dark hair and a molded ponytail, too. Life can be so much uh, dancing uh, within the tensions of anticipation and disappointment. I have recovered over time, however. (laughs) So, in other words, you took the mask off. And there was just a molded secondary mask. Like he essentially looked like a dentist with a ponytail. Oh, get out of here. That's, that's what awful. It like. Yeah,
1: that's, that's unfortunate. I, I got uh, a similar story. Now, do you remember the TV show Inspector Gadget? Yes. Do you remember the villain of that show, Dr.
2: Claw? yes yeah, kind of a blowfield uh, riff where he had like, yeah, a he big had a iron hand yeah, and a all, cat.
1: All you ever saw was his cat and his, his like – Iron gauntlet hand. right? And so you never saw his face. You always had to imagine what it looked like. But then at some point I saw on the internet, they made an action figure of him. So – and the action figure was not just like a chair with a hand and nothing else. It was this whole guy. And so they're like, well, let's just make up what his face looks like. And he just looked like – I don't remember. Some kind of – it was incredibly disappointing.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of the once and in uh, Dr. Seuss's The Lorax. In the original book and in, in the old classic cartoon version of it, all you ever see of the once is eyes peering out uh, uh, through something or and, of course, his hands. And I understand they made, recently made a big computer animated version of it where you see the, like, the once dancing around and it's like fully revealed. And perhaps that's necessary for – Uh, you know, adapting a a short children's book into a full length motion picture. But uh, it seemed kind of a shame, you know, like keep some of the mystery alive, right?
1: Totally. I I am against the face reveal on those things. That's such a bummer.
2: All right, so we got one
1: piece of mail on a Vault episode that ran in October, which was our episode I think first recorded last year called The First Monster, where we tried to talk about like the earliest signs of, of monsters in in archaeology and then where the idea of monsters first came from. Yeah. Uh, and so our listener Chris writes in to say, hello – In your episode on The First Monster, which I'm noticing came out a year ago, so you may have already talked about this, there was one criticism I'm surprised you didn't address regarding the idea that humans instinctively fear certain animals. I've recently found myself incredibly skeptical of evolutionary psychology in regards to humans. I think the idea that humans instinctually have certain behaviors that helped hunter-gatherers survive is complicated by the fact that humans show an incredible ability to learn new behaviors. An example I keep coming back to is how humans are are one of the only animals that don't instinctively know how to swim. The reason for this, it seems to me, is that since a human can just learn how to swim, having that instinct offered little to no reproductive advantage— For this reason, I think people might be too quick to offer evolutionary reasons for modern-day human behavior. A study showing that most people sort trail mix into its component parts might conclude that this behavior allowed uh, hunter-gatherers to determine the flavor and effects of different parts of a plant. While a study showing that most people eat trail mix as is might conclude that this allowed hunter-gatherers to gain vitamins from all parts of a plant rather than just the tastiest. Keep up the good work, Chris.
2: Wait, who eats snack mix like that? <laughs> Wait, picks the part. Do you pick the parts? No, no you just toss in. It is, a, it is a taste sensation. It is calibrated. Yeah, I would no more uh, eat my snack mix piece by piece than I would dissect a piece of sushi before <laughs> eating that. Oh man, have you ever seen somebody do that? Though I have. Well, I mean, I've seen my take, child do it, take but take I've never apart. seen an adult do it. That is satanic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and I say that I've, I've, my. my My kid doesn't really do that anymore. Mm -hmm. But like early on when he was like, what is this? I'm going to take it apart. Now he understands that, yes, it's a taste sensation. You take it all in at once and you uh, appreciate the explosion of of flavor and – and texture. I mean, that's the the whole experience. I mean, it, it reminds me of uh, something that came up in an episode of in- of invention that we recorded regarding chopsticks, right? And about how it is it is highly frowned upon to root around in your bowl and pick out like the choice bits of protein first, digging your grave. Yeah, yeah, yes. Don't don't be rude
1: like that. Just just <laughs> eat, just eat. If it's good food, it should already be composed well, and you can just eat it. Yeah. Now, if it is bad food or parts of it are bad, certainly
2: then yeah. all rules are off. You know.
1: Uh, Anyway, about the point Chris makes uh, about evolutionary psychology, I entirely agree. I I, I love evolutionary psychology and I think evolutionary psychology is really uh, interesting ground. But I think we should always be very conscious of its limits, right? I mean like I often see people – Playing around in evolutionary psychology where you say like I've come up with a scientifically plausible story for how our evolutionary heritage led to this feature of human culture or human psychology or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we should rule out hypotheses like that. I mean they're interesting to to play with and I think you can bring evidence for and against them and, and that's all good stuff. But people sometimes jump from I've come up with the scientifically plausible story to I have discovered the reason – you know, they've Mm -hmm. gone from I have a pretty good hypothesis that seems supported by the evidence to I have a proven theory. And you don't have a proven theory a lot of times. I mean evolutionary psychology is inherently limited in a lot of ways because you can't go back and rewind the tape. You can just keep looking for new bits of evidence to try to beef up your hypothesis. So I'm very pro-evolutionary psychology as long as you always remember to be extremely conscious about what the limits are and cautious about them.
2: Indeed. Well, on that note, we're going to take one more break and then we'll be right back. All right. We're back. And let's just go ahead and sound the basilisk alarm because <laughs> because the remainder of this episode is going to contain listener mail related to our episode uh All Hail the Great Basilisk or perhaps it was just called The Great Basilisk but you get the idea uh this involves the idea of information hazards and we acknowledge that well some people don't want uh uh to know about this and we should at least give you the uh the option to remain uh Free of its shackles.
1: Yes. Now, that being said, that's just a courtesy. I don't think this idea is actually dangerous. But if you're worried about an idea that somebody out there thinks might be dangerous, this is the time to tune out. Right.
2: Yeah. And plus it just adds to the mystique. Like, oh, wow, they're, they're giving me the option of not listening to it. Oh, it must be juicy. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> and it's pretty fun. That was a very fun episode. Yeah. And a lot of people really got in, I think, into the appropriate spirit of the thing.
1: Okay. So, uh, do you want to read this first message from our listener, Matt?
2: Yeah, we'll do it. Uh, Carney's bringing it over here. Hey, guys, I just finished your episode on information hazards. You mentioned that you couldn't think of an Actual example of true information that could cause harm, but as a public health scientist, this is a well known problem. Hmm. Some research has shown that circumcision might be slightly effective at preventing transmission of some STIs. That's uh, sexually transmitted infections. However, the effect, if uh, real, is pretty small. If hearing this causes men who are circumcised to forego condoms, which are highly effective, then this true information has harmed them. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Love the show and especially your October episodes. Yeah.
1: This is a really good point. I could. So we were talking in the episode about the idea of an information hazard, like something that is a true piece of knowledge but that you wouldn't want to spread because it would only hurt people by spreading it.
2: Yeah. I mean it gets uh, into the basic idea. A little bit of knowledge is, a, is can be a dangerous thing.
1: Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah, and I couldn't think of an example on the spot in the episode, but I think this is a great example. In fact, I can think of other examples now that uh, Matt has brought this up when it comes to public health. One would be, say, about spreading the idea of possible damaging side effects of vaccines. Oh, definitely. W- where like with any medication, there is going to be some incidence of side effects. So you might say that here's a vaccine for a disease that you really should get because without this vaccine, you're putting yourself at much greater risk, uh, you know, and you're putting public health at greater risk. But there is some extremely tiny percentage chance of some kind of complication. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you want people to be informed about what the possible side effects of any medication they get are. But what if knowing about this incredibly unlikely possibility discourages people from getting a vaccine that they really need? that would definitely be harmful. Yeah, so I think that could go in uh, in that category as well. Obviously, if people were accurately doing the, the, the risk-benefit analysis, they would say, yeah, of course, I need to get the vaccine, but maybe just the idea of some incredibly unlikely uh, negative complication from a vaccine would be so vivid in their mind that it would prevent them from getting the vaccine because the disease that the vaccine protects them from is just not as vivid an example.
2: Yeah, I mean, another example, that possible example that comes to mind is, for instance, if you pick up the idea that, hey, some scientists argue that uh, red wine has a, has, health, has a health benefit to it. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you take that as a reason then to drink three bottles of wine yourself every evening, uh-huh. then I think it's pretty safe to say you're taking things a little bit too far. Got to cap it at two bottles, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, cap it at two. Uh, but, uh, but That's but, not medical advice. You know. Don't do that. Um, but but certainly this is something where you could take a nugget of truth or at least um, – I mean you, you can say, yes, some scientists have presented information and findings that back up the idea that there are health benefits to, say, red wine or dark chocolate, you name it. Obviously, these, these, are, these are studies that make headlines all the time. Yeah. But the, if you just take that then as an excuse to just fully indulge uh, yourself in red wine and dark chocolate yeah. to the point that it harms you, then yeah, then – That is not good.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, you ready for the next one? Let's do it. Okay, our listener Jose writes to us about the Basilisk episode. Jose writes, hi, guys. Greetings from Mexico. I've been a long time listener, and I have to say I love the show. Keep it up. And in hearing your last episode, I decided to send my first listener mail. Sorry in advance for suboptimal English. I think your English is great, Jose. Yeah, way better than my Spanish. <laughs> um, to the point, though, I don't agree with the premise of the superior future punitive AI overlord. Uh, uh, good. Neither do I. <laughs> I have to say I found a somewhat possible reason for it to follow through with its hypothetical threat. Assuming it's not quite a godlike being, maybe it's doing so to incite fear on the future people as a way to incentivize the creation of its superior future overlord. I realize it's a cyclic way of thinking, but I just wanted to share. Thanks a lot and keep up the good job, Jose. Uh, I think that's an interesting idea. So this is like some very powerful intermediate A.I., Needs help achieving an even higher state of itself. So it's not retroactive, a causal blackmail, but it would just be punishing people for normal future facing blackmail.
2: So there's kind of an Oz the Great and Powerful vibe here, I'm yeah. guessing, you know, where it makes sense to uh, make your future possible self all the more fearsome so you can carry out your objectives. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think this would just be like standard kind of Machiavellian tactics, you know, mm-hmm. the, this is not involving any kind of a causal backward thinking decision theory. This is just, well, I want to scare people to help me now in favor of the current future. Uh, so, so yeah, I'll just intimidate them based on what they've already done in the past to motivate people now to do more in the future. If what I just said makes sense, I, I just use future a lot. I remain somewhat skeptical of the superhuman AI idea and even then the idea that it would use blackmail in order to achieve a greater good ultimately seems like a kind of like failure of ethics on the machines part.
2: I don't think that really would count as a greater good. All right, here's another one from Chad. Chad writes in, I love these types of episodes. (laughs) (laughs) An inevitable possibility of Roko's Basilisk occurred to me. If the supreme AI has unlimited power within the realm of physics, then what if the AI also discovers how to make time travel possible? (laughs) The thought hazard of our soul trapped and tortured in a digital hell increases to a different risk, that we could be plucked. "Quote unquote out of time by the AI and actually tortured in a future time. Just food for thought. Chat. I think
1: this is yet more fuel on the fire of uh, the case against time travel. Right? Yeah. Uh, if if you take as a possibility that you could create a superhuman AI with godlike powers that can do pretty much anything physically possible, and it and that anything physically possible includes backward time travel, why haven't we encountered backward time
2: travel yet? Well, maybe it's the Free Jack model of time travel, where okay. they can they can only pluck Emilio Estevez out of the past <laughs> if he has just been in a fatal car accident. Kind of a loophole. But.
1: Now, I never saw Free Jack, but is that the
2: one with Mick Jagger in it? Oh, it has an all star cast. It's yeah, Anthony Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins, Emilio Estevez, Mick Jagger. I don't remember who else. But I, I was super excited when it came out. I would sick. I would call the uh, the local theater and and beg them to please play Free Jack. Um, it's a, it's a flawed film, but, uh, but it, it, I have a warm place in my heart for it. Is the title a Jumpin' Jack Flash kind of thing? Is, are they going for that? I don't remember that at all. I no? don't know <laughs> how, the, how the title came about. Uh, but it it did have that basic idea that you could pluck people from the past, but only in limited scenarios. And I think there's a, a recent television series, uh, I didn't watch it, but my wife did, where people are kind of plucked out of time to serve on some sort of, uh, you know, a squad that does good. Well, kind of, what kind of a time cop scenario, but not time cop. Oh, man. And time. I do not know the name of the series, but I think it had Rob Lowe in it. Um, perhaps some of our listeners have uh, have viewed it.
1: All right, this one last piece of mail for today comes from our listener, Josh. Josh writing uh, in response to the Great Basilisk episode says, Hey guys, first I just wanted to say I've been listening for a long time and love the show. It's one of the podcasts I look forward to the most and keeps me entertained at work. So keep up the good work. Thank you, Josh. Now to why I'm writing. Bear with me as I need to do a little explaining. I was listening to your episode on Roko's Basilisk and the part about religion and heaven slash hell, et cetera, got me thinking. I was raised in a faith which I no longer believe in, Jehovah's Witness. They believe that there is no hell, there is just heaven and a paradise earth for the faithful of mankind to live on for eternity. Only a small number of mankind's faithful, 144,000, will go to heaven and act as kings and judges for mankind because they're, they are the only ones who really have experience of living on earth in sin yet still remaining faithful. The unfaithful will be gone. They won't be punished for eternity. They will just no longer exist. Everyone who has already died has already paid for their sins with death and will be resurrected after Armageddon to live on a paradise earth along with the faithful that survive Armageddon. There is more to it than that, but I won't go into it as it's not really relevant to my thought. My point is that Armageddon itself, according to their beliefs, could be classified as a biblical information hazard. According to the New World translation of the Bible, the translation that Jehovah's Witnesses use, which includes the Old and New Testament, Armageddon will only uh, arrive once every living person on earth has been told the truth of the scriptures so that nobody can say, well, I didn't know. It's not fair for me to be unexisted. That's not a word. Is it because nobody gave me a chance to believe? This is why Jehovah's Witnesses go from door to door talking to people and trying to make others believe what they do. The thought came to me when listening to this podcast that according to their beliefs, you could technically postpone Armageddon by keeping one person – a small community might be better – completely separate from someone who could talk to them about these beliefs. The information about their beliefs, if you believe what they do, is now an information hazard because as soon as the last person that doesn't know about their beliefs receives that information, that will trigger a armageddon i just thought it was interesting and wanted to share that such a large biblical event in this belief system is an information hazard it's not something i personally believe and anyone who does believe this wouldn't really want to stop armageddon in such a way but still works as an information hazard anyway that's all from me cheers josh
2: oh though well, that's very interesting i uh, i have to admit i don't i don't know much about the belief system of the jehovah's uh uh, witnesses. Uh, but uh, this uh, this twist on the whole Armageddon thing, uh, I think that is a, a pretty strong case for for a, an information hazard if you buy into uh, the, the, the notion that uh, once everybody has been informed, then Armageddon may commence.
1: Yeah, I admit I don't know a lot about Jehovah's Witness theology either, though I have had some very wonderful conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses uh, who came to my house.
2: Oh, yeah. They generally just give me um, – the material and move on maybe i look distracted or something i don't know
1: oh yeah i mean uh one day i happened to have time and the guy started by asking me questions about i think if i believed in evolution or something and so i was like well yeah and then we just talked about it for
2: a long time <laughs> it was very nice though he he was a sweet guy oh cool i am always open to a polite conversation about ideas but there's another thing about uh
1: josh's email that i think is always interesting which is like When people start – I mean we talked about this in the episode and and it comes through in things like Pascal's Wager and Mm -hmm. stuff. But when people start applying like very kind of of like cold direct decision theory to theological principles, like if you accept the theological principles as real, uh, but then you just start saying, okay, how do you optimize for best theological outcomes? It seems like religions don't – tend to encourage that type of decision-making on the basis of theological principles. It's really more just kind of like, well, here are the dogmas and you should you know, follow certain rules. Uh, but when people start trying to like use decision theory to optimize what to do based on the theological principles, it, al- it always comes off as very like, uh, no, 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 that's not how you're supposed to think about this.
2: Yeah, I, I have to say, I tend to prefer it when the the, the key argument of uh, of religion is, "Hey, uh, look how we can improve your life or the lives of others on Earth." Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, here are the net positives of the belief in the real world as opposed to, hey, we have to reduce the human population to a certain number so that the no-god can return or something. <laughs> and that's just a little, you know, we, we've got to get everything just right for Armageddon. That's just not a great sell for me personally. We're not saying that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses are trying no, to no, do. no, 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 no. But, uh, yeah, but, you know, when it's, when it's more based <laughs> in, in like some specific scheme for the afterlife. Then, right. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I just
2: don't personally see the appeal as much.
1: It can sometimes feel kind of like one of those sci-fi movies where you have to like trigger the machine in just the certain ways. We flip the big switch and then you hit the command console.
2: (laughs) Earth has performed an illegal operation and will be shut down. (laughs) Yeah, I mean I still enjoy hearing about all these, uh, these different belief systems and I also have to acknowledge that, you know, certainly some of those belief systems out there that are more afterlife centric mm-hmm. and, and maybe harsher in their um, theology, we do have to acknowledge that a lot of times those religions are created by and or marketed to individuals who are living like closer to the edge in the here and now. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, I have to acknowledge that I, I, I have a certain amount of privilege in not being In, uh, you know, not being a part of the target audience for those types of theologies.
1: Well, yeah. And, you know, it's sometimes hard to remember that even within a religion that has particular dogmas, there's actually a lot of diversity of belief usually in what people privately believe versus what their church teaches. I remember growing up in Tennessee, there, there were people who like belonged to churches that uh, said, you know, you can't drink alcohol, but they didn't know that. <laughs> you know? Wait, my religion says I can't have beer? I, I had no idea.
2: Indeed. It's, it's a big tent uh, for sure. Uh, and sometimes there's drinking in that tent. All right, so there you have it. Uh, Part one of our Halloween Hangover listener mail extravaganza. That's it for the Basilisk content. Uh, We'll cut that off. But when we come back in the next episode, we have so much more October listener mail to get through. So many wonderful uh, thoughts about uh, various monsters and evils and threats and curses and even, uh, of course, the deadly Mirkwood squirrel. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful
1: audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, uh, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi, let us know where you listen from, how you found out out about the show, all that kind of stuff. You can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.